A glorious, glorious song to start with, and that's the choice of our guest, Dr. Mandla Langer. He's uh, kicking off with Curtis Mayfield. You know, the best thing, of course, about having your guest in the studio is you can see physically how they respond to the song, and that's brought a huge, huge, huge smile to your face. Well, thank thank you so much for uh, inviting me to this uh, program, uh, Michelle. It's one of the treasured listenings that I oh. I always do, and something I would really recommend for everyone and anyone who wants to know anything and everything <laughs> about what's going on in this country, especially in the area of culture, in the area of, well, the politics and uh, your interview, for instance, much, much earlier with uh, the whole question of uh, turning the waste in the household waste uh, by into something that nurtures the soil. For me, I listened with very big ears. So, do you, do you do that with your family at home? <clears throat> yes, my family listens to the radio, so I think uh, we'll know henceforth. Although uh, June, my wife, has been doing it. Yeah, she's always been very, very conscious of don't throw. Nothing needs to be thrown away. Things need to, you know, it's a Recycling is actually something that is even a political act mm. in the sense that, you know, when people like Amilka Cabral speak of returning to the source, once you return things to the yeah. source, you replenish them, you strengthen them, and they come back, you know, with steroids. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, it does talk, you say it's a political act, and it is when you start to think about it as a circular economy. And Absolutely. what that that return and that cycle mm. is all about. Mandla, you were telling me off air why you really like the Curtis Mayfield song. Curtis Mayfield was one of the uh, signal people we used to listen to in the days of the black consciousness movement. Because somehow all his lyrics were very, very uh, uplifting. People mm. get ready, there's a train coming. You know, that became mm. an anthem of sorts. And Move On Up was a song that, for me personally, gave me a lot of oomph, a lot of feeling that uh, we have to move on up, we have to advance, whatever the hurdles. Uh, as black people, we have to find ways of changing, you know, the program, changing the system, move on up. You know, it's funny, you talk about returning to the source, and in many ways, choosing that song is about returning to a source. It's about returning to your source. And uh, it's also something that you do cover in your book as well. Um, when we think about the lost language of the soul, it is about a character who is on a journey, but it's also about returning to a source of history that we do have in this country. Talk to us a little bit more about history and what it means for you as a creative force to move forward. I think history is one of the most important uh, aspects of our lives, of our growth. Uh, I speak of a replenishment without understanding. I mean, this has become almost like a cliche. Mm. When you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going to. 
and uh, always uh, in political terms, sociological, philosophical terms. History is what grounds you, what makes you know what has happened. For instance, recently I was looking at some of the things that have been done in the holy name of advancement. <laughs> you know, the uh, the plunder of, of civilizations, the fact that everything has been turned upside down. Now, if you don't know that, if you don't know, for instance, the social construct of racism, the yeah. fact that it's not, you know, a scientific thing uh, for people to look down on others and, and just see skin culture, color as a determinant, once you look into history, you'll find sources that strengthen your understanding of why things are done. Why do we have, for instance, the so-called war on terror and what mm -hmm. it has done to, you know, uh, the, best, the whole part of the globe is in turmoil just after 1990. Yeah. So, Mandla, you know, you, you, we, we talk about the role of history, and as you say, it is a cliché that if you don't know where you've come from, you're not going to know where you're going. But as they say, a cliché comes out of the fact that it is so prescient that it is repeated again and again. Mm. I wanted to talk about the concept of memory and history, memory and storytelling, perhaps because of how the last language of the soul is is written and I'll take a quick deviation in that I, I recently heard the fabulous um, Spiwo speaking to you, a really excellent interview with <laughs> you. But one of the things he said is, isn't it time for an autobiography? And I wondered if perhaps we don't need an autobiography, that fiction itself becomes a means of understanding history and memory in a very different way to nonfiction. Mm. And, and I thought you could <coughs> maybe discuss that a little further. Well, uh, I'm not old enough to have a, uh, an autobiography. Please, some people are doing it at 24, <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, yeah, I still have a problem. Maggie Offord uh, once spoke of uh, the difficulty of using the, the pronoun uh, I, I, I. Yes. You know. So I still suffer from that. That's why most of my books still use the third person. Uh, I I still struggle with the uh, first person. So, but be that as it may, going back to your question, I think that uh, if you look at the act of remembering. Uh, for me, it's something that has been very, very important because for a very long time, there has been a disjuncture, mm. you know, a cutting off from, as it were, the source of my creative fiction. So in a sense, what then that does is it poses an, 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 a burden on, on, the, on the writer to find ways of reflecting those things that happened a long, long time ago in another area, in another time, and and represent them cre as creatively as possible. So you you dip into yourself. Yeah. Uh, when I was away, when I was, for instance, in London, 
wanting to write uh, about Durban, my city. I had to depend on uh, visitors. And uh, sometimes you write that uh, West Street is going from east to west or north to south, only to find that, you know, or oh, it's a dual <laughs> carriageway. When you find that, it's now a one-way street, you know. <laughs> and I remember a time when I was with Lefifi Tladi, an artist, a musician, yes. and Jonas Gwangwa and Dudu Pugwana, after we had been at Festac, and we, the old guys were talking about, reminiscing about what they remembered in Sophia Town, in specific parts of the landscape of Johannesburg. And then Lefifi, who unfortunately <laughs> did not have the sensitivity at that time to understand what he would say the effect it would have on these uh, incredibly nostalgic people. Uh, Lefifi said, you know what, guys, all that area you're talking about is now a big highway, you know. And I could see the despair and the disappointment on the faces because they what... They were remembering Gray Street. Yes, they were remembering and... all those markets and yeah. so on and so forth. But uh, David Hare, the 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 uh, dramatist, the mm. has said something which I've carried with me. He says, an exile walks around the world carrying in his head the image of a perfect universe. So for us, when you write, wherever you might be, you are carrying that picture of that perfect universe and you deep into your head to express it. It reminds me of the Vusi Mahlesela song talking about um, having dust on your shoes in, in maybe in, in, I can't remember if it's London and also that Sting song in Englishman in New York. I mean, as you Absolutely. say, it's like what you carry with you becomes the reality, mm. the real dust or whatever the case may be. Yes. We're chatting to Dr. Mandla Langer. He is an author and much, much more. And if you haven't read his latest book, The Lost Language of the Soul, I'm going to tell you, go on to Take A Lot or wherever you go and buy your books, whichever bookshop you go to, go now and buy it. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we'll talk to him a little further also about the fact that uh, he believes in lifelong learning and uh, went back to school. I'd love to hear about that one as well. At SAFM Radio and at Mesh Constant on SAFM. It's a real honor we have Dr. Mandla Langer in the studio with us. We're talking about concepts of how we look at memory and storytelling. But indeed, this is a man who has written a variety of books. He's also a poet. He is well known within our literary hierarchy in South Africa. And certainly, uh, I would imagine, I would certainly say, sits at the very top of that hierarchy with a couple of others as well. And yet he decides to go back to school. Um, and we were talking about it off air and I was just saying it, for me going back to school was like allowing someone to shove their hand into your brain and just shake it up because it's a complete lesson in humility but you learn stuff that is completely fresh it, it's, it's an extraordinary experience isn't it? It is uh, one of the things that happens is that we don't know what we don't know and uh, as a and as a writer, uh, you know, so many years, I started writing my first published, whatever, poem. 
I was 19 years old. Now that's in the other sen- century. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I wouldn't have thought of it like that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, I've been writing. And as you write, you can accumulate an incredible number of uh, bad habits. Yeah. And going to school, going back to do an MA in creative writing was for me to try and for a moment slough off the skin of an old mandala and try to find a new me in the other people. You learn in in that circumstance uh, how to listen very attentively to the stories of others. Uh, You might have your own story in your head but that process, uh, it's immersive in the lives of others. So it's a, an introduction to an incredible amount of empathy huh. and uh, identification, you know. And uh, for me, that was useful. It also, one of the things I learned, which has been drummed into my head, is the issue, the question of the point of view of who is doing the talking, the who's writing, telling the story. who's telling the story. And uh, I, I really recommend it even for uh, those who think or who might think that they've reached the top of the uh, literary ladder. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That ladder just keeps going on up. Yes. You know, <laughs> just like <laughs> Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> <I swear. laughs> you know, um, Mandley, we were talking and you mentioned how one of the things you... Um, that, that that opened your eyes was to this idea of young writers writing speculative fiction. And maybe what's interesting about that as well is this idea that a lot of your writing um, is about the present and the past, and yet speculative fiction takes a whole different look at the future, um, which I must say more and more and more as I start to read dystopic novels, I start to think it isn't the future at all. Mm. It's actually the present. And it does talk to timelines, short-term timelines, long-term timelines. Hmm. Maybe talk a bit about that. Yeah. You know, one uh, of the uh, of my mates in the in the colleagues in the writing uh, class was writing a story about yeah, about the future, about uh, it was a, an incredibly violent story, but it spoke of the kind of violence because you can't write without having tapped into mm. the experience of you know a contemporary circumstance yeah and uh, that was one of the things but the issue of uh, technology uh, it's going to be our savior but it's also going to menace us quite significantly and in the writing class, I, I got a sense of that. And I got a sense of how then uh, people see their world. And perhaps they are seers. They are people who are gifted yeah. with, the, with, the, with the power of clairvoyance, of gazing into this crystal ball and creatively finding ways of dealing with some of the... Uh, cock-ups, as Margaret Thatcher would say, <laughs> of the present and uh, translating them into yeah. 
or projecting them into, you know, what they then would mean for for the future. And I think we should read speculative fiction. Uh, I now watch. I never thought I would, you know, watch science fiction that deals with, uh, you know, what the world can become. But then, of course, you said something earlier. Orwell's 1984, we're living it now, mm. you know, and that was written. They've always said the magic of today is the science of tomorrow. Absolutely. So how we imagine the future may very well be its yeah. reality as well. We're going to go into your second song, and um, you've got a great uh, story to this one as well. Hugh Masekela and the Union of South Africa with Caution. Tell us about it. Caution is a signal tune that was used by the BBC uh, Focus on Africa. There was Alex Tetelani who used to introduce this. And wherever we were <laughs> in the world, wherever we were, we could tune in to this because for that 30 minutes, that program was talking about us or people yeah. like us. And so that song is like my second skin, really. Uh, when I hear it, it brings up, you know, those shivers and does something also else. It throws me back into some of those territories. Yeah. Some of them incredibly grim, some of them pleasurable, but in the main territories where we were not at home. Let's go for it. I'm not sure whether I can say just glorious because it's much, much more. Um, it's actually, it makes you emotional, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it's a song that, um, you know, cuts straight into my soul, really. So it makes me very, very emotional. You know, Mandla, um, you, you, you were saying how when you listened to that tune, that song, that it was so much more than a tune, um, you, you felt as though you were visible. It was about you. You were listening to uh, narratives about you. And I think that that's something that is, is well worth talking about, is this idea of how we become invisible and how we, we maintain our visibility or how we help people feel visible, which, of course, literature does in so many ways. Mm. Talk to us about that. You know, there's a Inisi Zulu greeting called Saubon. Saubon, I see you. Which means I see you because I think uh, it's very important for, for people to be seen because to be seen is to be heard, is to be validated. It's for your reality to, for people to know that you exist. Now, you know, without going too deep into this, in South Africa, we've got a population of over almost 60 million. Yep. And uh, we've got some people, of course, who are trying, fighting to uh, reduce that population by uh, chasing out of our country some people who make up the South African fabric. Uh, but in that population of 60 million black people in the main, even though they form this overwhelming majority, majority. 
black people are not seen. They are endured, you know. Mm. And uh, for me, writers or people who've got the uh, mental of or responsibility of reflecting on what is going on in any any society have a role to render you know martin trump wrote a book uh, rendering things visible yes we have to render black people visible in this overwhelmingly uh, white country because yeah. everywhere you go there's a, a disavowal of of your presence yeah so I want to introduce your first guest. He's in the studio, uh, Prof. Andres Oliphant. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. You've, you, you've asked Andres to join you. Why? Andres, well, I mean, he's a, a walking uh, <laughs> encyclopedia of South African writing. And uh, he has been there in all the major arenas where there has been anything being said about South African writing and he has contributed immensely you know whether as an editor writer and uh, has seen the establishment of writers organizations and has uh, you know uh, critiqued I think his work is 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 of utmost importance scholarly uh, work creative work and uh, given the uh, his association knowledge uh, of for instance uh, Nadine Godima who whose lecture is going to be presented uh, sometime next week 8th of September we'll talk about that as well yeah. Andres is, is is an immensely crucial person so I'm 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 honoured that he, he agreed to come to this. Andres, thank you so much for joining us. I'm gonna I suppose hand the conversation to the two of you. It's a real pleasure to be able to have both of you here in the studio. You are um, delivering uh Mandela, the Nadine Gordimer lecturer lecture on the eighth of September, which takes place at the University of the Witwatersrand. It doesn't it pays tribute to Nadine Gordimer, the South African writer. But also what it does is it pays tribute to the power of the literary landscape in South Africa. And, and I'll start with you, Man, uh, Andres, and then if I may go to Mandla. This idea of this landscape that is, it f feels like it's heaving. I, I saw this video of like earth actually heaving because of the wind that was going underneath the surface of the grass. I, it's a I don't even know how it figured out, but it feels as though the literary landscape is heaving like that as well. You've really had an eye on that, Andres. Talk to us about it. Yes, uh, Michelle, and good morning to the listeners and good morning to Manjalanga. Yes, you know, the history of South African literature goes back, of course, historically scholars in, in English and the African language sometimes tend to associated with the arrival of uh, the Europeans mm. and the development of uh, writing yeah. in, in the African languages. But uh, South African literature is much older. It's ancient. It goes down to the Stone Age 
amongst the uh, the, the Khoisan people. Mm. There's strong literature in the Nguni languages, in the Sutu languages that reaches back into the, into the past. But now, with the coming of uh, the the European settlements, a European dimension um, entered into the literary uh, landscape, and there's a tendency with literary historians to begin the history of South African literature hmm. with uh, with Cape Dutch, which became Afrikaans, and then English, of course. Now, this coincidence of the arrival of European culture, of course, created a very conflictual context of, of appropriation, of uh, 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 revolt uh, over time. And that became a signature in South African literature. One can say it's not just from from the post from the apartheid days, you know, the, the yeah. middle of the 20th century, but it reaches back. If you read the Thomas and Fawler Shaka and the other mm. early African uh, writers, indigenous writers, you see the the tensions between the colonial settlement and the indigenous cultures. To the extent that uh, with the uh, ascent of the uh, Nationalist Party in 1948. South African literature became radically politicized. The generation of uh, the 50s and 60s, yeah. Manila Nanga's predecessors, Louis Nkosi, Mpashele, mm. uh, and, and those, already began engaging with the realities of South Africa. And then the exiled period, uh, when they had to leave, Manila eventually joined up with, with, with that historical process. So there was writing that was uh, developing outside of South Africa, and I think Mandela's own uh, early works were written in in in, in exile. Right. Mm. And now, of course, uh, when apartheid ended, uh, some people thought South Africa has lost its uh, subject, so to speak. You know, the historical struggle mm. for equality, and uh, many people thought said gleefully said, you know, what are these guys, these so-called radical writers, going to write about now? And the flourishing of new creativity has been remarkable, and I think uh, someone like Manila Langa was at the forefront of, of this renewal. And in any case, I haven't had the opportunity to tell him this. I had just had a student, I'm retired now, but the last student that I promoted for a master's degree had in fact done a, a, a research on Mandela Langa's <laughs> work. Snap. <laughs> so yes, South African. And what did he come up with? Or would you rather not say on air? <laughs> no, I think what he, what he looked at is uh, he used a, a very sophisticated theory. It's called dialogism. It's a Russian um, uh, uh, literary theorist who came up with this, and he looked at the sequence of the. Uh, novels and the short stories, mm. but basically looking at uh, his, the evolution of his writing from the, uh, the early novels and, and short stories to the, to the latest work, but yeah. looking at how um, he depicts, uh, the, 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 he visualizes and depicts uh, people working in, that, in this case yeah. against the conditions under which uh, uh, they, 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 they lived of the times. So you see the trajectory of Mandela's work from the early work to the post-apartheid work, and it actually approaches the problems that we are facing today as well in his fiction. Mandela, what did you say earlier about we don't know what we don't know, except that when we listen to Andres, we do know what we don't know. It's like, 
I'm also interested, Andres, in in what you were saying um, about what the stories are that we tell. And, and, you know, there are some fantastic books that have come up in the last couple of years. I'm thinking of Yuenda (coughs) Omotozo's book, uh, I forget the title, about grief, um, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was this extraordinary, extraordinary story which was so profoundly South African, but so profoundly not just South African, so, so much more. And I thought Mm. that we are seeing so many young people just really jump into the fray. I mean, the publishing world feels so very exciting now. How do you feel that? Are you feeling that? One of the books, one of the uh, gems that has been, that can run the risk of being forgotten, is the work of some of the younger writers. Some mm. of them, unfortunately, have passed. Passan and, mm. and, and uh, Silo Taker, yeah. uh, you know, 13 cents. And I, I read that those books uh, because I think one of the biggest problems that we find in our country is that uh, people might be writers, but they don't read other writers' books. And I think that's... I would applaud that comment, yeah. That's a real, real failing that we need something that... It's not a terminal disease. It can be remedied. And uh, so I try as much as possible to read just about everything that comes out of... And uh, as I was saying earlier, when you asked me about the MA, I find the point of view of young writers, of young people fascinating in the sense that some of it has got resonances with what with how we saw the world at the time when we saw it yeah but there's also a freshness a newness and a daringness you know a, yeah. a courage you know an in your face way of reflecting reality and so yeah I don't think it's just, I mean, I don't think it's just writers that need to be reading other writers. Mm. Um, you know, I was talking to someone who lectures um, in a drama department and we were just talking about th- this ecosystem of value. Um, this idea that there's there's value in what someone writes, then there's value in what we might look at with music, then there's value in what we might see as art. There's value in what we might see as politics, as economics, etc., but it, but the value actually happens when it becomes a spider web and an mm. ecosystem and it all joins together. And I imagine that to become a really great writer or a really great anything, you need to be able to connect to all those other things as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a writer is really a comparative literary scholar yeah. that draws on music, draws on traditions, draws on, on art, draws on sport, uh, deals with... A, uh, 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 crime deals with uh, uh, corruption, deals with adventure. In other words, a writer cannot depict a, a society without a, a vision of the totality of the society. Because if it's one-dimensional, then it tends to fail as as, as creative mm-hmm. writing. So uh, someone may be a, a liter- literary person, but is uh, creating a narrative about a doctor and his patients. So you have to do some research uh, about that, or if you want to write a, milit- uh, a, a novel about war, you have to read some something about war history and so forth and so on. And uh, if you uh, want to set set your your novel or your, your what you're writing in a particular place, 
you need to know something about the environment, yeah. the flowers, the animals, you know, and everything that's going on around there in order to create a convincing world. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of what Margie Orford said a bit earlier about this book, um, Eye of the Beholder, which is around gender-based violence and the kind of research and um, you know, digging deep that she had done mm-hmm. and even the work she had done with Catherine Smith as well. She didn't mention this um, in the interview, but um, Catherine Smith, who was an artist in South Africa, but then went on to become a forensic artist, if I'm not mistaken, in the mm-hmm. UK. And I just started mm-hmm. to think, well, to, to work with someone like that and get some of those outcomes... Mm-hmm. We need to go to a break, but when we come back, we've got Lisa Combrink on the line as well. And I'd like to I'd like to close off, if I may, with Nadine Gordimer. I know you're going to be talking about her, Mandela, mm. but just um, also, Andres, your expertise mm. on that, if I may do that after the break. Michelle Constant on SAFM. Well, we have a huge uh, uh, weight of, of expertise in the studio. Uh, Dr. Mandela Langer, Professor Andres Oliphant, um, and on the line as well, we have poet and writer Lisa Combrink, who is Mandler's third guest. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and good morning, Michelle. Lisa, we, we, we're talking here about how we, we'd like to close off um, with the fact that um, Dr. Langer is delivering the Nadine Gordimer Lecture on the 8th of September. And maybe to talk about uh, Nadine Gordimer and we were talking about ecosystems and and spider webs, and maybe to look at what those tentacles or tendrils that she had um, that she was able to draw in, but also to put out as well. Uh, Lisa, perhaps you could just uh, start kick off, and then we'll go to Andres and and Mandla. All right. I think let me acknowledge the presence <laughs> of Mandla and um, Andres as well. Um, thank you for having me. Um, you know, when I think of Gordimer, I think of her writing as part of a quest for truth and justice. But I also think of the essay that she wrote. Um, I think it was a, a pen for pen. Um, and that was about witness and the mm. inward testimony. The idea um, that the role of the writer is to act as witness to world events and to bestow upon these understanding and meaning. And I think that in The Lost Language of the Soul by Mandalanga and a lot of contemporary writing, that quest remains. Mm, the notion of acting as witness. But what I've heard in the conversation so far is also not just the quest, um, you know, in be not being content with being witness, but trying to really go um, beyond that. Maybe from witness to revelation, to revealing something about power, society, history, memory, and also ourselves. Mm. Thank you, Lisa. Andres, yourself, when you talk to the idea of Nadine Gordimer, because in many ways she's, I mean, she's a reality, was a, is a reality, was a reality, but she's still an idea as well, a kind of philosophy almost. Indeed, you know, very interesting uh, person as such. Her parents uh, were Lithuanian, her father, watchmaker uh, on the East Rand in Springs, and her mother was English. And she was uh, very frail uh, as a kid, and her mother took her out of school, but taught her at home. And um, 
she published her first short story when she was uh, still, you know, uh, I think she was about 10 or so. Yeah, nine years old. <laughs> nine years old <laughs> in, uh, in one of a ch- a children's magazine. Yeah. And she has published now over uh, a, a hundred uh, short stories, if not no more. I mm. can't keep up the count because she's a great short story writer mm. and a uh, novelist. Uh, she went to Wits um, for a while and only lasted a year and dropped out. But now it's a kind of irony because Wits uh, University is uh, Own her. owns her <laughs> in, the, in the Nadine sort of lecture. Yeah. So, you know, in that life, and she was extremely productive. She published over 200 short stories. She wow. published, uh, like I think, ten to, or, or can't remember the number, but well over ten novels. Yeah, and a, a brilliant essayist too. Mm. Um, a huge collection of uh, essays was published around about 2010, Telling Times, where she brings together all the essays that she had written, say over 50 years or so. And in, at another level, she had a direct interest in the, the struggle yeah. for liberation in South Africa. And the, the, the position that many writers took, especially writers from the community from which she came uh, at that time, was to, 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 to close their eyes to what's going on in South Africa and write about an imaginary world in which the problems of the country, in particular the pernicious uh, politics of apartheid and racism was, and she she faced that directly mm. and wrote about it and uh, because of this, the you know the, the tensions in the society many of them uh, begrudged the fact that she won the Nobel Prize yeah. I remember a good friend of mine who late, later became a literary uh, uh, a journalist uh, at uh, Phone, or we were on the phone one one day, and we were talking, and I said, "Did you see, Nadine has won the, uh, Nobel, the Prize. Nobel Prize?" And she says, "No, I don't like him. You know, I don't like her. You know, she writes so much about politics." But I asked her, "Did you read any of the stories?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She then went to, and she became so close to Nadine Godima. You know, yeah. She was almost like a daughter to her. Once she went through the the fiction. She, she now lives in Sweden, but uh, uh, she was so close to Nadine Gornimer towards the end of her life. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of South Africans still mm. need to discover her work. Yeah, I mean, I certainly can't say that I know her work well, um, and I, I'm much to my shame. I, I want to, Mandela, if I may, um, we're going to have to close off with you, but I love what Lisa said about witness, bearing witness, but also about revealing mm-hmm. I, I think that's just yeah I, I, I think it's incredible that mm-hmm. that we do bear witness but actually what we do as authors not me but, mm-hmm. but yourselves as authors is you reveal to us something that we might have known but might not have known mm-hmm. as you say I didn't know what I didn't know or maybe I maybe I did know what I didn't know mm-hmm. or, you know I think uh, Building up on what Andrisa said, uh, you know, Nadine Godima, when she was very young, she used to go to this convenience store where um, they served black people and they served white people. And she could see, even though she wasn't aware of what she was seeing, 
And uh, that's one of the things that I, I speak about in the lecture. The act of witnessing, the act of being present in something. And sometimes w you don't know what it is that you are seeing until yeah. much, much later when you can then process that and give feedback to yourself and say, this is what uh, has happened. Uh, what uh, Eduardo Galeano, who is a Uruguayan writer, said when he wrote about the travails of people and the uh, duplicitous role of the United States, let's say, in Latin America, South yeah. America, etc., he spoke about the role of the writer as being some kind of glue that tries to piece together because we are living in a world which has become a huge jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> so we need to find ways of making sense of that. And that's bearing witness. And today, uh, there's so much horror that's happening. Yeah. Mm. And we have to find a way, not only to reflect it, but to make it understandable. To, yes. to break it down and and make sure that people are not overwhelmed by it, but understand whence it comes. I would um, close by saying that in many ways your, your, your latest book does exactly that. And as I mentioned earlier, it is an extraordinary book, one of my top three books of last year, without a doubt. Mandelanga, we are closing off. Um, I'm going to give you the last 30 seconds. Well, I'm very grateful to have been invited to this interview. And I, I'm i also very, very happy and and looking forward to delivering the Nadine Godema Memorial Lecture. But I'm also happy that there are people whom I can, you know, see as a crutch. People like Andres, people like Lisa, you know, who have been there and are there and are also bearing witness yeah. and are contributing, pushing the frontiers for South African writing. Lisa Combrink, uh, we didn't get much of you, but thank you so much for what we did get. Prof. Andres Olifia, as always, um, thank you Olifant. for joining us. Oh, Olifant, my <laughs> apologies, I'm like, my apologies. And uh, Dr. Mandla Langer, um, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. I'm afraid it's 10 o'clock. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye. <laughs>